Welcome to Supersize Science, the podcast that features research and discoveries enabled by advanced computing technology and expertise at the Texas Advanced Computing Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Jorge Salazar, a science writer at Tech. High above your head right now, it's raining dirt. Day or night, every second, millions of pieces of dirt that are smaller than a grain of sand strike Earth's upper atmosphere. At an altitude of about 100 kilometers, bits of dust, mainly debris from asteroid collisions, zing through the sky, vaporizing as they go 10 to 100 times the speed of a bullet. The bigger ones can make streaks in the sky, meteors that can take one's breath away. Scientists are using TAC Stampede 2 supercomputer allocated through Exceed, the extreme science and engineering discovery environment funded by the National Science Foundation, to help understand how tiny meteors liberate electrons that can be detected by radar and can characterize the speed, direction, and rate of meteor deceleration with high precision, allowing its origin to be determined. Because this falling space dust helps seed rain-making clouds, this basic research on meteors will help scientists more fully understand the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere. What's more, meteor composition helps astronomers characterize the space environment of our solar system. The meteor research was published in June 2021 in the Journal of Geophysical Research Space Physics of the American Geophysical Society. On the line now to talk more about it is study co-author Mears Oppenheim, a professor of astronomy at Boston University. Dr. Oppenheim, welcome to Supersized Science. My pleasure. Would you tell us about the main findings of your study on meteors that was published in the journal of Geophysical Research, Space Physics, in June of so, 2021? So that's a recent paper. What we've been working on, um, and I'm the first author is Glenn Sugar, who's done terrific work. He's uh, recently graduated with his PhD. Yeah, I guess it's two years ago now. And this is part of his thesis research. What he was doing was he was trying to see if we could really understand what happens when a meteor hits the atmosphere, gets very, very hot, um, gives off material in a process called ablation. That material is moving hypersonically, meaning many times the speed of sound. It slams into the atmospheric molecules and turns into a plasma. And that plasma then, of course, is visible if it's large enough to the naked eye, and even little tiny ones are visible to radars pretty much all the time. What we're trying to do with the simulations of the meteors is mimic that very complex process to see if we understand the physics going on and to also develop the ability to interpret high-resolution observations of meteors, primarily radar observations of meteors. I mean, we get, if you take a big radar and point it at the sky and big, I mean, really big, um, you know, 20, 30 meters across hundreds of feet in diameter radars. And there are many of these around the planet. And you look up and radars are basically, they're sending up radio waves, typically VHF, similar to um, not so far from the FM radio band. And they're basically sending up a signal and listening for an echo. And meteors make incredibly strong echoes. In fact, it was one of the first things, geophysical things seen by radars when they were invented in the 1930s. You know, they invented these very primitive radars in the 1930s, actually at the Naval Research Labs down in Washington, D.C. And um, very soon thereafter, they were detecting funny echoes coming from about 100 kilometers altitude in the sky, 60 miles up. 
at first they thought they might be cosmic rays. They didn't know. And then quickly they figured out they were meteors too small to be seen with the naked eye. But radars are incredibly sensitive to them. So that big radar is something, uh, you know, with you know, 100 feet across, or there's uh, the Arecibo radar that recently disintegrated, can see multiple meteors per second in a little tiny patch of sky, meaning the Earth is getting hit by millions of millions of meteors every second. These guys are smaller than a grain of sand, but they're moving 10 to 100 times the speed of a bullet. So, you know, they, they make streaks in the sky and the radar is just very good at picking them up. And yet interpreting those measurements has been tricky. Knowing what we're looking at when we see these measurements is not so easy to understand. And so what we're trying to do with the simulations is essentially mimic the process so that we can then use what we learn from the simulations to back out information out of these detailed radar observations, and then therefore characterize the meteor that hits the atmosphere and then back out all the physics that, that that implies. You know, there's a whole field of astronomy interested in where the stuff comes from and what it's made of. And meteors are important for atmospheric science too, because it, meteors are constantly raining this stuff, this dirt basically into the atmosphere. They're made of, you know, carbon compounds and silicates and magnesium, you know, basically rocky stuff, dirt. <laughs> it's raining dirt into the upper atmosphere. And if, if it weren't for that dirt, the upper atmosphere would be very clean. Water, for instance, likes to coalesce. When it freezes, it likes to coalesce on dust or dirt. And meteors provide that in the upper atmosphere. And so it, it's part of the entire Earth atmosphere system, having this constant rain of debris into the planet Earth. Now, that's the motivation. And there's, there's lots of other sort of sub-motivations. We use meteors to detect winds in the upper atmosphere. Meteor dust enables us to shine lasers at the atmosphere and then characterize the atmosphere in a process. Lasers, it's a, they call them LIDARs. So, you know, this dust, this meteor input into the atmosphere plays many, many roles in atmospheric science. And then in astronomy, it's very important in characterizing What's out there? Where does it come from? You know, what does the outer solar system look like? We actually infer it from the meteor population that comes into the Earth. We infer what's out there and how much collisionality there is between asteroids because that causes them to get ground down into meteor dust that then comes in. And cometary streams also produce meteor dust, and that comes in. And so we use these observations to sort of characterize the space environment of our solar system. So there are many, many other groups that look at meteors. What Glenn's recent paper does is he does really detailed supercomputer simulations of a, a tricky thing. I mean, what he do, does is he basically has a box he sets up and he says, okay, this is a little chunk of atmosphere. And in the middle of it, I'm gonna assume that there's a little meteor. And that meteor is spewing out atoms as we presume that they're spewing out atoms. And then what happens to those atoms as they slam into the air molecules? And what does that create in terms of a plasma? Uh, what, what it does is those atoms, when they slam together, they ionize, they strip the electrons off the atoms. And radars are really sensitive to free electrons. 
And so you make sort of a big conical plasma that develops immediately in front of the meteoroid and then swept, gets swept out behind the meteoroid. And that then is what the radars can observe. And we want to be able to go from what the radars observe back to how big that meteoroid is. The simulations allow us to reverse engineer that. And we're essentially trying to be able to say, hey, if you see a meteor with this kind of radar and it gives you this signal strength with these characteristics, this is what the meteoroid looks like. And up to now, we've we have very crude estimates of that, but the simulations allow us to go beyond the simple crude estimates. Would you characterize like where we are in our understanding of meteors to that point in, in modeling like the, this meteor head that, that you described in this paper? We're leaps and bounds ahead of where we were 20 years ago. Then it was a lot of hand-waving arguments and you know, some of them were pretty good. Some of them, it turns out not so good about what the meteor plasma looks like and what you can infer from that. There was another paper that came out, uh, I guess it was 2020 instead of 2021, that Gabby Tormson was the lead author on, where she actually simulates what happens if you take a micro scale piece of something the size of a grain of sand, or actually way below that, much, much smaller, and you slam air molecules into it and how fast does it heat up and start bubbling away the material? That's a tough problem, but we now think we can simulate that all the way to simulating then that material comes out. And this is a, a different simulation that Glenn did. The material comes out and uh, expands and slams into the atmosphere, making the plasma. And then he did yet another simulation where he then takes that plasma, he puts it into a, a simulator that then shoots it with a, a pretend radar beam and then infers how much radar signal you get off that plasma. Because all of these things are very hard to do with pen and paper, all these calculations, because meteors are just these incredibly inhomogeneous, you're essentially modeling explosions. I mean, these, all this physics is happening in milliseconds you know, maybe hundreds of milliseconds for the bigger ones. And for the, the boloids, the giant fireballs, that can last a few seconds. But it's, we're talking seconds, <laughs> they're explosive events. And we're, we're modeling it all the way from picoseconds, which is, you know, the time scale of sort of the meteor disintegrating, you know, and the atoms interacting when air molecules slam going, the meteors are often going 50 kilometers a second. Um, or even up to 70 kilometers a second. The Leonid's meteor shower particles are going 70 kilometers a second. You know, that's, you know, um, you know, incredibly ferocious speeds. And what happens when an air molecule slams into a particle? Now we're really being able to use the power of Stampede and Exceed and these giant supercomputers to evaluate that in incredible detail. They're tough problems to do um, with pen and paper because, you know, you've got all this physics going on at similar timescales. You know, you have this physics of the boiling of the particles off and the ionization as, you know, the particles then spreading out and slamming into the air molecules and ionizing. And, you know, it's, it's all comparable timescales, which is actually when simulations work great, but 
analytical theory works really well when you can say, okay, this, this single phenomena is happening independently of this other phenomena is happening independently of this other. And that, that's, that's when you can do pen and paper analysis. But when it's all happening at once, it becomes so messy. Simulations become really the t- best tool. And so we're doing actually three different types of simulations to attack this problem. You know, we're doing what's called molecular dynamics, where we look at individual atoms as the air molecules slam into the small particles at picosecond time resolution. (laughs) And then we go to a different simulator and watch what happens as those molecules then fly away and slam in, and then the independent molecules slam into the air molecules, become a plasma, and then the electromagnetic effects of that plasma as it expands out and what it looks like And then a third type of simulation, we take that plasma and we launch a virtual radar at it and listen to the echoes. And there, so far we haven't been able to combine those into one. It's too, what's called a stiff problem. It's too many different timescales, but we're heading in that direction. As the computers get more powerful and we can throw more and more computer time, maybe someday we'll be able to do this all as one giant self-consistent simulation, but we're not there yet. And it may be a, maybe a, another couple generations of supercomputer before we can do that. Yeah, so Glenn's really paper is the evolution in a long string of simulations where we've gotten more and more accurate models of just of this phenomena. And Glenn really, I, I mean, I think he really took the, the system, he leapfrogged quite a bit. I mean, he really was able to take us, I I didn't think he'd be able to do it when he started his thesis five years ago or six years ago. I thought he'd have to do separate simulations for the expanding meteor and then take that and put it into, you know, an estimate of that and put it into a different kind of simulation that then did electric fields. But he was able to do it all in one simulation. And that was really impressive. And so we've seen how that evolves, how the, well, the problem you have with these kinds of simulations is you create, you know, ions and electrons. Ions are these incredibly, you know, comparatively heavy things, you know, might be an iron ion or a silicon or a magnesium ion, whatever the meteoroid was made out of. And then you have the electrons, they weigh almost nothing. And they sort of go zinging off to the edge of your simulation really fast because, you know, they're moving thousands and thousands of kilometers per second. It's a tricky simulation to do, and he was able to do it. And, and um, we're, we're continuing to, to do even bigger and better ones. And it seems like his results were right on. Um, you know, we had to sort of, yeah, at some point simulations, you, you have to, you have a maximum size you can do for a simulation because you just don't have infinite computer power. And, uh, and I was worried that, that limited us and was giving us some artificial artifacts because of the boundaries of the system. Eventually, electrons go out of the boundaries and, you know, what do you do with that? And you have to deal with the fact that now your whole simulation might be coming overall electrically charged to a degree that's not physically correct, because if it did, then electrons would get sucked in from the outside and compensate. But with boundaries, you know, how do you do that properly? And we were really, I was a little worried about it. And we did some testing to make sure that was robust, but we were only able to get so big. But now we've able to actually quadruple the size of the simulation again. And it turns out that 
Glenn's results were dead on. I mean, that, that it didn't matter, that uh, his boundaries seemed to be um, not having a major impact. So that's, it's terrific. And it means that, you know, the inferences he's got, what, what his end result was to essentially set up um, tables that people using radars looking at all these meteors can then use to, to reverse engineer those signals and say, okay, I see this kind of signal, therefore my meteoroid is was this big at that time. And then, you know, and then, you know, how big was it and where was it coming from in space? And, you know, how much material did it deposit in the atmosphere? And we can get a lot more detailed information out um, because of Glenn's work. Could you speak a little bit to how this research relates to non-scientists? Well, I mean, you know, I get called every time there's a meteor shower, not every time, but frequently when there's a meteor shower, I get called by a couple newspapers, you know, because everybody wants to hear about the latest meteor shower. And, you know, there are dozens of meteor showers, but there's a few big ones, you know, the Oranides, which just happened, the Leonids, which will happen in November, the Perseids, you know, and people see meteors. They see, they tend to see the bigger ones. You don't see the, the, the ones that I'm talking about when you talk about a million per second hitting the earth. Most of those are invisible to the naked eye. Um, you see the, the bigger particles. Showers tend to be bigger particles, um, still smaller than a grain of sand, but big enough to be seen by the naked eye. And then, of course, every time there's a big fireball, then there's excitement. You know, Those are pretty rare, depending on how big you're talking about. I've seen a couple of fireballs in my life. I actually saw the, what's called the Poughkeepsie fireball when I was a graduate student. It was this enormous fireball that sailed across Ohio and New York. And I was driving up from Maryland to central New York at the time, and it flew across my field of view. And as it went, it sort of exploded. And then it ended up slamming into the trunk of uh, a car in Poughkeepsie, New York. Fortunately, it was an old car and the the meteorite that they picked up was worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that was one of the very first times we actually had a fireball where we tracked it through the atmosphere and then actually got to pick it up. And it was happened on a, I think it was a Sunday night and lots of people were at their kids um, sporting events and they were taking, uh, well, this happened in the, what, the early nineties. So everybody was, filming their sporting offense with, you know, VHS type or, you know, some sort of magnetic tape. And there are lots of images of, of sporting events. And then the camera swings up to track the fireball. And one of my colleagues, Peter Brown, actually pasted, got a lot of these and pasted them together to make a sort of a video movie of this happening. So I got to see that. So every now and then there's a fireball and people get very excited about it. And then of course the very large, objects, there's a whole planetary defense initiative to see what we could do about avoiding really huge objects. My research and Glenn's research that's represented in this paper focus on the very frequent common stuff that sort of has an implication for um, atmospheric physics, has a major implication for astronomy. The, they're, they're the ones we see all the time as opposed to the very rare giant events that can threaten <laughs> threaten um, life on Earth if worse comes to worse. Um, let's hope not, but but you know it's happened before. Meteors are you know everything from an atmospheric science issue to an astronomical issue to 
a pragmatic issue as well. That's sort of the importance. So supercomputers give you the power to investigate in detail real physical processes, not sort of simplified toy models. And, you know, that's what super, the real power of the supercomputers is. And, to, and then to teach us what's important and what's not. It allows us to play sort of numerical games to sort of say, okay, um, we have this complex system. Do we need all that complexity or can we throw away this part of the complexity or that part of the complexity? And supercomputers ultimately are a tool for numerically testing ideas and coming to a better understanding of the nature of meteor physics and everything in the universe. I mean, that's what their power is. That, you know, they, they give us a way to test ideas and hypotheses. You've been listening to Mears Oppenheim of Boston University. Supersized Science is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the host and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.